Welcome to The Apple Seed, where we bring you and your family great stories from great storytellers. On today's episode, we'll bring you a mountain of Christmas anxiety. And he said, no, no, we're gonna kill Santa Claus. And a molehill of danger. She bought me a Cub Scout pocket knife. Young people, they used to give eight-year-olds pocket knives. I'm your host, Sam Payne, and today we have stories filled with Christmas cheer. We love Christmas time at the Appleseed, but we all know that the season comes with its share of challenges. From North Carolina, here's Donald Davis with Don't Kill Santa, recorded live in the Appleseed studio. When I was a little boy, I grew up in a little house that was built about 1900. We heard that when that house was built, it didn't even have a bathroom. It had an outhouse in the backyard. But somebody who owned the house before we did had closed in part of the back porch, and we had a bathroom. We had about everything we needed except one thing. We didn't have heat. We just about froze to death in that place in the wintertime. There was a big, a big wood stove in the kitchen where my mother cooked, and mostly we stayed in the kitchen in the winter because it was warm in there because there was always a fire in that wood stove. We also had a fireplace in the living room, and we always had a fire in the fireplace in the living room, always, always, always during cold weather, except one night of the year. We never had a fire in that fireplace on Christmas Eve <laughs> because we were born knowing, just like you were born knowing, that Santa Claus comes down the chimney. <laughs> so on the afternoon of Christmas Eve, we would let the fire go out and then my daddy would clean all the ashes and all the leftover little unburned pieces of wood out of the fireplace. My mother would sweep it out, and she would even take our Electrolux vacuum cleaner, and she would vacuum out the fireplace and clean it all up because we didn't want Santa Claus to get dirty in our fireplace and go tell everybody else in the world that he got dirty in the Davis's <laughs> fireplace coming down the chimney. And then on Christmas Eve, when it was almost time to go to bed, we would take our Christmas stockings, which actually were just clean socks, <laughs> and we would hang them up on the mantle above the fireplace. And when we got up on Christmas morning, you know where our presents were. There they were, right in front of the fireplace where Santa Claus had come down the chimney and filled up our stockings and left our other presents there as well. And that's the way the world was made and that's the way things happened year after year after year. Now, one of the problems in our family was that my mother was born cold and never got over it. <laughs> she was just freezing all the time in the cold weather. If you got up early in the morning, you could sneak in the kitchen and catch her because she would get up before anybody else and build up the fire in the wood stove. And when it got really going, she would pull a little chair up in front of that stove and open the oven door and wrap her feet up in a towel and stick her feet in the oven to get thawed out from being cold that night before. 
Well, one day near the end of the summer, my daddy came home and he said to our mother, Lucille, Lucille, you're never gonna be cold again. And she said, what, what? He said, yes, they had a big sale at Massey Furniture Company and I bought us what's called a Siegler oil heater to go in the living room and from now on, we're going to be warm in the wintertime. And men came the next day and they brought in this big heater. It was square and it was tall and it was dark brown and cream colored. We thought it was so pretty, it was beautiful. And they showed my daddy how to light a Kleenex and drop it in the door and turn on the oil and it would poof up and you could look through a little window and see the fire in there. And my mother was so excited because now when cold weather came, she was going to be warm. Well, what I didn't explain was to put that heater in the living room, you know what they had to do? They had to put a metal plate over the fireplace. And that metal plate had a round hole in it where the stovepipe from the heater went into that round hole. And then the heater sat on the hearth right in front of where the fireplace used to be. But we didn't think about that. We were gonna be warm now. In October, we had our first cold night and my daddy started up the heater and it got warm and our mother went in there and hugged it <laughs> and held on to it. And when the heat finally came all the way through her, some of the rest of us got a little bit of it. <laughs> and when it got the living room warm, we could open the doors that went right into our bedrooms in that little tiny house and it was warm all over and everything was fine till about a week before Christmas. One night we finished eating our supper and my little brother asked if he could go play in the living room because it was warm in there. And my mother said, thank you for asking. And he disappeared in the living room. The rest of us were still sitting at the table. And then all of a sudden we heard him screaming screaming, and we went running in the living room, and he was rolling over in the floor screaming and pointing to that oil heater. And my mother said, what's the matter? Did you get burned? And he said, no, no, we're gonna kill Santa Claus. <laughs> he's gonna try to come down the chimney and he's gonna get burned up alive and he's gonna get killed and everybody in the world's gonna know we're the people who kill Santa Claus. We're gonna kill Santa Claus. And my mother looked at my daddy and said, Joe, you're gonna have to take out the oil heater till after Christmas. My daddy did not take out the heater. He got me and my little brother, and we went out to the garage where he kept all kinds of stuff. And we got two pieces of plywood that were square. And we got white paint and red paint. And we painted the plywood white. And then when it dried, my daddy wrote the letters and my brother and I with a little paintbrush, we painted red paint on top of the letters till we made two big signs. One of the signs said, notice, this chimney is closed. Go in the front door. And the other si sign said, welcome. The door is unlocked. 
come in here. And when the paint dried, we watched my daddy lean the ladder up against the front of the house, and he climbed up the ladder, and with wire, he wired that sign that said, this chimney is closed to the chimney. So when Santa Claus landed on top of the house, he would see that sign that said, chimney closed, go in the front door. And then he took the other sign that said, welcome, the door is unlocked, come in here, and he nailed it right over the front door of our house. Isn't it amazing we didn't get robbed? <laughs> and he said, that ought to take care of that. And we started in the front door, and all of a sudden, my little brother just fell down crying. And my daddy said, what is wrong now? And my little brother Joe said, what if Santa Claus didn't go to school and he doesn't know how to read? <laughs> and my mother said, he knows how to read. He has to write all the instructions for all the toys he makes. Well, we weren't sure about that. And we were really worried on Christmas Eve when we couldn't hang our stockings over the chimney anymore. We had to hang our stockings over the doorknob. And the last thing we did was check to be sure the front door was unlocked. And we went to sleep and we got up in the morning and we came sneaking in the living room. Phew. It worked. Our toys were right beside the front door and our stockings hanging over the doorknobs were full. Well, that year, when we put away all the Christmas decorations, we took those signs down and we packed them away with the other decorations. And the next year, when I was nine and my little brother was seven, we put the signs back up and Santa Claus came in the front door. And then we packed them away with the Christmas decorations. And the next year, when I was 10 and my little brother was eight, we put the signs back up, Santa Claus came in the front door. The next year when I was 11 and my little brother Joe was nine, we put the signs up. Santa Claus came in the front door. We packed them away. And then before the next year when I was 12, we moved to our new house. We were packing everything to move and we came to the Christmas decorations. And there were those two signs. And my mother said, now boys, when we made these signs, you were little boys. But you're not little boys anymore, and you probably know some things now you didn't know back then. Do you really think we need to take these signs to our new house? And my little brother said, of course not. Our new house has a fireplace. <laughs> And so the signs went away, and Santa Claus started coming down the chimney again. And if you happen to come and spend the night with us at our house, doesn't matter how old you are, if you know he's coming, Santa Claus will always come to see you. Ha, <laughs> ha.
<laughs> that was Donald Davis with Don't Kill Santa. You know, you never know what's going to bring on a memory, and you never know what kind of memory it's going to bring on. Donald's story about parents taking special care on behalf of their kids when those kids are worried about something important makes me think of some of the ways my own parents cared for me when I was worried about something. I remember, for example, when I was six or seven, loud noises made me nervous. Fireworks shows, for example, were exciting, but they were also kind of terrifying. My grandparents took me to the beach once on the 4th of July, and there was a big fireworks show right there on the beach. I mean, imagine it, fireworks on the beach. Can you think of a more idyllic way to spend the 4th of July? Well, I could. I was worried enough about those loud noises that I went and waited in the car during the fireworks. And that's when my grandfather started calling me The Ears. That was his nickname for me for a while. Sam The Ears Pain. But it wasn't just fireworks. Loud noises were a problem when I first started getting interested in going to the movies, too. My folks took me to see the very first Star Wars movie in 1977. It's probably not the first movie experience I had in my life, but it's for sure the first one I really remember. I was five years old, just about to turn six, and the film was playing at the small-town movie theater called the Coral Theater, just a few miles from my house. Man, the memories in that theater. For years, I mean, later in high school, we'd see movies there just about every weekend, and by then, it had run down a bit. We called it the Sticky Foot, and the enormous theater manager would walk up and down the aisle with a flashlight during movies and yell at you if you ever had your feet up on the seat in front of you. Those were the Sticky Foot days, but when I was six, it wasn't the Sticky Foot. It was still the Coral Theater, a little jewel for the local moviegoer. And it was 1977, and it was Star Wars, and I was completely carried away by that experience. I was also terrified of the enormous, deafening sound coming out of the big movie house speakers. Just a minute or so into the movie, I turned to my dad, and I asked him if he would go and ask the folks who worked at the theater to turn the sound down a little bit. And my dad, he got up and walked out of the theater, and he came back in a few minutes. As far as I knew, he'd asked the projectionist to do what I'd asked. And I settled down in the knowledge that the rest of the movie wouldn't be quite so loud. I leaned my head against my dad's shoulder and watched Star Wars. Man, I loved that movie. And I loved my dad, too. And the next time we went to the movies, I didn't even wait for the movie to start. I just asked my dad if he'd run out real quick and ask the projectionist to turn down the sound a little bit. Well, my dad got up walked out of the theater, came back a few minutes later, and we watched the show, my head on his shoulder. It happened over and over again at every movie I saw when I was a little kid. Thinking back on it, it's tough for me to imagine that my dad talked to the projectionist at all. I've often wondered if he walked out of the theater, wandered around in the lobby for a moment, came back in, told me everything was going to be fine. I've even asked him about it. He says he can't remember it ever happening at all. But I sure do. I suppose he could simply have turned to me in that first movie and said, listen, people don't ask the movie theater to turn the sound down for one kid. It's just not done. I mean, I guess he could have done that, but he never, ever did. He would always stand up, leave the theater, come back, and let me watch the movie with my head on his shoulder. And whether he actually did talk to the projectionist or not, 
doesn't really even matter. Not a whole lot. That's a memory that sneaks up on me from time to time. Most times, I don't even see it coming, but I like remembering it. It's just one of those little signs of which there are many more signs of being taken care of by my dad. That's where Donald's story took me. Where did the story take you? And who will you take along? There's a lot coming up, but first I want to introduce you to another show from the BYU Radio family of podcasts. The show is called Top of Mind, and it's perfect for people who want to engage with tough issues that matter in our communities, but are turned off by how polarizing and divisive these conversations can sometimes be. Each week, Top of Mind tackles one tough, important topic. An award-winning host, Julie Rose, talks with guests who have complicated perspectives that are sure to challenge you. Now, they're not trying to change your mind, just give you the chance to find more empathy and clarity so you can become a better citizen and a kinder neighbor. Listen to Top of Mind on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, all kinds of ways to find Top of Mind and listen whenever you like, whenever you need it. Top of Mind with Julie Rose from BYU Radio. It's a pleasure to be with you today on The Appleseed, and it's time for another challenge of Christmas, waiting for it to get here. Here's Andy off at Irwin with a story called Secret Santa, recorded live in the Appleseed studio. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's so beautiful. So beautiful, Sam. Uh, there are two kinds of grown-ups, and the shallowest of people divide people into two groups, and I'm just that kind of man. You know, like they're, um, this is how you can tell a shallow man. A shallow man says, look what you did. A really shallow man says, look what you made me do. <laughs> well, that's not what I came here to tell you. Um, no, there are two kinds of grown-ups. There are wise grown-ups and unwise grown-ups. Unwise grown-ups don't remember childhood. I'm convinced of that. Wise grown-ups do. Now, that's according to the sociologist Andy Irwin. Like, I, I, remember, I remember being a kid and um, the county fair was coming and they used to put these hatch prints all over town of the county fair coming. And if you know what that is, then you know what old jazz and soul music is. They, they would put these prints all over and I said, oh man. And I remember seeing um, Sally Lynette, who was a, uh, an acquaintance of my Aunt Marguerite. I said, I can't wait for the fair. I can't wait to get for the fair to come. And she said, it'll be here before you know it. That's ridiculous. When you're a kid, that's ridiculous. It's not going to be here before I know it. I'll know the second the trucks come in. That's when I'll know the fair is here. But wise grown-ups are a different kind of thing. Like, wise grown-ups understand that things we anticipate when we're children take a long time. My mama used to say to me when she wanted me to hurry up to go somewhere, she goes, you are as slow as Christmas. That's a wise grown-up right there, right? That's a wise grown-up. You know, I would go, all right, mama, I'm coming. And that's the way that works. I couldn't wait to become a Cub Scout. When I was seven years old, I wanted, all I wanted really was the uniform. I thought it was beautiful. To, to, to wear medals and badges and have those little arrowheads. That's what we had back in those days. And to finally get that uniform. Because, you know, we all know that Cub Scouts, Boy, Boy Scouts, it's a paramilitary organization. 
Maybe you don't think it's funny, but still. <laughs> but, but I couldn't wait to, to become a, a Cub Scout. I wanted to look more manly in that uniform. And I remember Marguerite, my Aunt Marguerite, seeing me in that uniform. There's that, 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 that gold piping on the blue uniform, and I felt so... But then there's that little beanie kind of freshman hat. She goes, that hat is so cute. I didn't want to look cute, and I couldn't wait. Then I couldn't wait to become a Boy Scout. But I remember being a, a Cub Scout, getting a lot of arrowheads, and I went from wolf to bear. And my mama was so proud of me, we went to White's department store, which sold the official Boy Scout gear. If it's official, it's tops. <laughs> you remember that? That's what Pee Wee Harris told us in Boy's Life magazine. And we would go and, to, it was a little clothing store, department store, a little, you know, storefront in our town. And I would always go and peruse the, the Boy Scout equipment and my mama would go and get a scarf. But when I became a bear, she was so excited, she bought me a Cub Scout pocket knife. Young people, they used to give eight-year-olds pocket knives, <laughs> right? Yeah, absolutely, yes. And we would carry them to school. <laughs> no kidding. Um, and people who've grown up my age will say stuff like, you know, and we were fine. No, there were a lot of stabbings. <laughs> so, I, so when I finally became a Boy Scout, I wanted to look just like the Boy Scouts on the commercial. There was a PSA, a public service announcement, and it was sung by Frankie Lane. And it was all these Boy Scouts camping. And he would sing, follow the rugged road, follow the rugged road. The scouts are coming, they're leaving in the money. Follow the rugged road. <laughs> we didn't laugh at that commercial. Oh, it was beautiful. And their scouts were there. They were, they were building fires and they had their hatchets and they were hacking things and they were whittling things and they were burning things. And that's what I wanted to be and couldn't wait. Now, back to wise and not wise grown-ups. Christmas takes forever when you're a kid, doesn't it? Part of that is the marketing. Part of it is August when the catalog started arriving. <laughs> And you're a kid, and you look at it, August, September, October, November. That's four months, man. That's a third of the year. And you're like, oh, I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait for Christmas. I can't wait for Christmas. And then, and then if you're a kid, and you're in a choir, or and you're in a, a band or something like that, that, they pass out the music in October. So it takes a long time. And I consider the holiday season beginning when we get the sheet music. <laughs> so that means there are seasons within the season. All right? If you follow baseball, there's pre, you know, uh, 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 all-star game is post-all-star game then the playoffs and it's, it's a bunch of little seasons Christmas works the same way and I remember you know uh, getting the music and singing and then there's that other season right before school stops when everybody does Secret Santa in their various organizations and Boy Scout Secret Santa was super fun we had a $3 spending limit limit this was, that was pretty good money. And I remember going with my mama. She gave me $3. It was part of my allowance. All right, you've got to use your allowance to buy your secret Santa something. And she was perusing scarves again because she was always giving thank you gifts as scarves because they fit everybody. <laughs> and I found it, man. I found that official Boy Scout piece of equipment that said that I had the maturity and the skill to do life-saving surgery. The official Boy Scout snake bite kit. <laughs> Do you remember that? Yeah. I'm not making that up, am I? No, I'm not. It's, a, it's, it's, it's about half the length of a hot dog. It looks like half a hot dog weenie. And it's embossed. The official Boy Scout logo was embossed on the side. You unscrew it. Inside is a scalpel. 
a little X-Acto knife is what that was, a, a little alcohol swab, and Scott's honor, this is real, uh, and a little tourniquet string. And I ran to my mama, and it was, it was a buck 75. I'm going to make a little profit. I said, mama, 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 I want to get my secret Santa this. And she took it. She unscrewed it. She saw the scalpel. She said, what the cuss? And she walked out of the store w without, without paying for it, without anything. And there was no <laughs> on the door or anything. <laughs> Sorry, Dan. <laughs> and she walked out the store and, and, and one of the ladies goes, Miss Tootsie. That was my mama's name. Don't laugh at my mama's name. <laughs> and she marched. Remember marched? She marched to the bank of Covington Building, which was this Romanesque big building. Upstairs was a lawyer and one of the very first physicians in history. Roscoe Sams. He was an old, old doctor. He still used glass syringes. Okay, that's not funny. He had a jar of leeches. And she walked past the nurse, who was the same lady as the receptionist, has the same lady as everything else. She got the little cap on, that little nursey cap. And then she walked in to Dr. Sam's office, and he had his feet up on his desk. He was reading the Covington News newspaper. There used to be a thing called newspapers. They were made of paper, and they would arrive. <laughs> in the morning and your dog would go and fetch it for you if your dog was free range. We'll talk about that later. <laughs> and, and she said, Dr. Roscoe. Now he was a generation ahead of her, so she had to address him like that. Roscoe was his first name. Dr. Roscoe, look what they're selling boys at White's department store. Hi, Tusi, how are you? Now, Dr. Samson's one of those guys that didn't need to clean the inside of his glasses because his eyebrows did it for him. <laughs> what do you have there, honey? And she, he looked at it. And he looked at me, and he looked at my mom and said, White's department store. He opened it up. They're selling this to boys. And he reached down at the phone. Well, he was in the Kiwanis Club with E.G. Lassiter, the guy who ran White's, and he knew the number. <laughs> this was in the before time. <laughs> I mean, he'd been renting this phone since 1932, y'all. <laughs> It was a metal dial and all the, you know, it was all shiny around where the holes are. You stick your finger in. <laughs> Dr. Roscoe looked at me. And they're as slow as Christmas. It's the apartment store. Get me A.G. Lassiter. A.G. Lassiter. A.G. Roscoe. Y'all are selling these little hot dog looking, snake bite looking things at the store. Discontinue these right now. This is, these things are stupid and dangerous. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> there used to be a thing called doctor's orders. <laughs> so, what whites did, they didn't stopped selling them, but they discontinued them and they put them all on sale. They sold them for 40 cents a piece. <laughs> Therefore, when Secret Santa time came, everybody in my troop, everybody in my troop got a snake bite kit, except for Pat Wiggins. He got the little cutlery kit you could put on your belt because I was his Secret Santa. <laughs> Oh, 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 
Andy off at Irwin with Secret Santa. You know, I had one of those snake bite kits that Andy talks about in his story when I was a kid. It lived inside a first aid kit, inside a storage room at the end of the hall in the house that I grew up in. You know, I never used that snake bite kit, but imagined using it hundreds of times. Those imaginations live in my memory even today. We hope these stories brought you some cheer today. Thanks to Donald Davis and Andy off at Irwin for sharing some of their holiday childhood memories with us. We hope those memories sparked some seasonal memories of your own that you'll pass along to the people you love. After all, sharing and listening to great stories can really change your family's world. The Apple Seed is produced by Wendy Folsom, Sam Payne, and Brian Tanner. Our audio engineers are Ashton Parkinson and Carly Wilson. The rest of the Appleseed team is Kelly Wehrmeister, Trent Horton, Evadane Hendricks, Miriam Isay, and Tristan Schetzel. A special thanks to the subscribers of our podcast who rate us or leave reviews. You help people find the show. We also love to receive emails at the Appleseed at BYU.edu. Your thoughts and comments help us to shape the future of the Appleseed. We're pleased and proud to be among the many podcasts produced by the BYU Radio family. And you can find episodes of the Appleseed wherever podcasts are found, on the BYU Radio app or at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. I'm Sam Payne, and the whole team can't wait to be with you again on the Appleseed.